Welcome back to the Power Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today it's my great pleasure to have with us Gordon Marks. Gordon is the National Para Rowing Coach for Australia and prior to that he was the Head Rowing Coach for the ACT Academy of Sport and he's, so he's been coaching on the para side since 2012. So welcome to the podcast, Gordon. Thanks, Liz, and great to be here and, and good to talk. It's good to, to catch up with old friends. Yeah. Gordon, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got into coaching para rowing? Sure, yeah, yeah. Like, like many coaches, uh, it, it's not a clearly defined path and, and it certainly wasn't for me. My introduction to rowing was back in the 80s and fair to say my awareness of para sport was low, if, if not nothing. Mm-hmm. I then fell into coaching, I think, in the early 90s when I was semi, semi-retired from competing myself. I, I, I think I'd retired mm-hmm. before then but didn't know it. I, I was still hanging around. Um, and, and in retrospect, I think that's really what it was. And someone needed some help. And, and it was really through, uh, the way I remember it is helping out someone that was a friend that needed help and I had something to offer. And then I found pretty quickly that I really enjoyed the coaching side of things and, and continued with that and, uh, skipped on and, and did a few other things, then was teaching for a little bit and, then uh, knew that I wanted to come back to Canberra to start a family and and then coaching at the ACT Academy of Sport for quite a few years. The basic criteria was that if you were part of a national team or a national squad, more or less in really simple terms, you, you were eligible to be supported w- within the academy program. And mm-hmm. there was, at that time, I can't remember what year it was, but certainly early 2000s where uh, there was a local fella uh, with a visual impairment. He was included in, in one of the national squads, mm-hmm. but it was really separate from the mainstream rowing. And in, in my mind, that, that was a simple sort of, well, you've qualified for a squad, you meet the criteria, so therefore you're on scholarship and then I'm interested in, and really want to help you. And that was ahead of certainly what he he thought I think it was a, a bit of a surprise at the time but but we worked our mm-hmm. way into that fairly quickly and it was certainly ahead of it, it wasn't para specific it was more that he was eligible for a scholarship based on being part of a national mm-hmm. team if make, that makes sense so and, and I yeah. think that speaks a lot to my philosophical uh, approach of para sport I don't depending on the context I don't necessarily see the impairment I just see someone that wants yep. to learn to row or someone that has the right to be on scholarship. And that, that was my first real introduction. And then I dabbled a little bit or sort of helped out really on some national camps that were part of the national team set up at that stage. And we hosted some crews out of the ACTAS program. But for me, mm-hmm. it was really just these were national squad rowers that were entitled to support. So it wasn't about the impairment mm-hmm. so much. And then after the, the London Paralympics, it was proposed to me that, or basically I was asked if I was interested in the position to be the, the a head coach for the, the para team. And for me, it mm-hmm. wasn't so much about moving into para sport. It was actually quite an easy progression to somewhere that, that was looking for what I had to offer, I think. I just felt like mm-hmm. I was personally welcomed to that. And then for me, 
it wasn't about coming into para sport it was just working in an environment where i could uh, continue to offer people support and help in, in to learn how to row and to learn how to be faster and uh, at the international level and, and really boiling it down to where we're talking about length of stroke the power that you put in and how many strokes per minute you, you, you rate as being the main determinants of success and then what I found pretty quickly was that para sport is not constrained by a whole lot of history and cultural thinking that in some ways really narrows thinking and I, I'm pretty conservative anyway so I, I don't I'm not saying that I come up with all sorts of amazing ideas, but what I found in parasport that if the function dictates form, so if you if you needed someone to row longer, you, you had to let go of some of the conventions that were uh, around in able-bodied rowing that mm. that are there for good reason, but in parasport yeah. around someone's impairment, you, you find yourself doing things that you wouldn't normally do, and I really like that where quite often and even still you know we're we're pushing boundaries around doing things that haven't been done before and quite often we get we'll come up with an idea or or work a solution to something or you know just day-to-day stuff really i I think and then when we float that the response is quite often oh who else is doing this what's the evidence around Ah. that and and i really enjoy saying well this is the good thing no one's done it before so let, let's yeah. have a go, do something different, and, and then we can talk about whether it's a good or bad idea. Because people you know, are quite reluctant, I think, to, to go into new spaces and stuff. And I don't do that all the time. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I'm pretty conservative. So, but I do enjoy that aspect of the sport. So anyway, that's a, a very roundabout way of how I got into para-coaching. So I guess what you're saying there is that with able-bodied rowing, there's, there's certain there's a certain framework that's expected of, yep. of coaching and, and from the technical side of things. Yep. And so there's a bit of resistance to doing anything outside of that technical kind of history. Um, I'm, I'm not sure about... Re- you actually have to... Yeah, I'm not sure about resistance. Maybe it's, it's because things develop over time and they're there for good reason. And occasionally mm-hmm. we, we get people that diverge away from what is acceptable, the accepted or normal practice, if you like, and, and sometimes they get mm-hmm. amazing results. Mm. And and that can be physiological preparation or, you know, people are coming up with new ideas all the time, um, but it seems to always then retract back to what what we know in the sport. Uh-huh. Yeah. And as you say, there's there's very little research on the parasite, so you are creating that space and, and creating some of that paradigm from the paras perspective. Yeah, I think so, quite often. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So can you tell us a little bit more about power rowing, um, what are the eligible impairments, what are the boat sizes and compositions, and what distance is covered in races? Yep, all of our international racing is, is 2,000 metres, or mm-hmm. uh, put it this way, in line with the international able-bodied rowing distance, and I, I think that's an important feature of power rowing, that, that it can then be easily integrated into uh, able-bodied competition or it's just one world championships and power rowing is included in there and previously we'd have to change uh, race distances so that that was changed post uh, Rio so 2017 was the first 2000 meter event prior to that it was a thousand meters and that was problematic in Mm. terms of being able to have events at some courses so 2000 meters that that can take anywhere from 
oh, let's say there's a range from seven to 10 minutes depending on the event. Uh, so it's a, mm -hmm. a middle distance endurance event of, of really high intensity that typically the, the hardest event. Well, mm -hmm. I, I'm not into the argument about what's hardest or, or the hardest event, but it, it's very, <laughs> very hard to prepare for yeah. because you're doing a lot of endurance work and a lot of high intensity work and basically just doing a lot of work that hurts. Yeah, it challenges all the aspects of the physiological system, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And with that comes some significant psychological challenges as well that, that you know, really hardens mm -hmm. uh, athletes. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that's the distance. And, and then our sport classes. In, in power rowing, there's three main international sport classes of varying mm -hmm. impairment or ability type. And they've changed in, in terminology uh, over the years. So currently uh, we have PR3, which is our um, most yep. able or least impaired sport class. Mm -hmm. And that from the outside can look like able-bodied rowing. So minimal impairment. We've had some people appear internationally that have been on able-bodied national teams. Mm -hmm. And then they suffer an impairment. So it might be something like a, a fused ankle Right. Uh, limb deficiency, below knee amputation, uh, visual impairment is also included in that sport class. Mm -hmm. Then there's PR2, which more or less is trunk and arms function mm -hmm. with limited to no leg uh, contribution to the power in, in the sport. Right. So also there's a variety of impairments. We, we've had athletes with cerebral ataxia, bilateral amputations, Mm -hmm. significant impairment through uh, accident of leg function. Yep. Then there's the PR1 sport class, which in effect is, uh, previously it was called arms only, but you can have yep. uh, some capacity to contribute to the power in other ways. And that's, uh, so typically you would see paraplegics or high-level bilateral amputations. And mm -hmm. then... Perfect. The PR1 sport class, I'll work my way back up then. PR1 mm -hmm. sport class is the, the international events is a single skull only. And, yep. and in their boat, they row a different boat that is wider than a standard rowing mm -hmm. boat because they're typically quite easy to roll over, a little bit wider. Yeah. And then they have stabilizing pontoons that yeah, pro provide that stability. And the seat mm -hmm. is constructed in such a way that they need to be uh, more or less strapped in. Uh, that, that's for right. safety purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, then the PR2 sport class is also a wider boat. And internationally now we have a, a single and a double event. The double event, uh, all, all the, the crew boats in para rowing are mixed gender. So the PR2 mm -hmm. double skull, that'll be uh, with a male and a female. Then the PR3 uh, events, they effectively use, well, they do use able-bodied boats, so just a normal, what we call normal rowing boat. And also mm -hmm. internationally, it's the PR3-4, which is also mixed. They have a coxswain yep. as well. And then the coxswain is, is of either gender and not required to ha have an impairment to be eligible for that. So typically mm -hmm. what we see is is those fours going around with able-bodied coxswains and coxswains that have a significant elite experience behind them. That, that's what I've noticed. Mm. That as they get to the end of their Olympic or World Championship career, there's quite a few that, that sort of pop up in the para space, uh, which, which I find okay. interesting. Yeah. Then 
the, the Paralympic sport classes, so at the Paralympics, is the PR3-4, the PR2 mixed double, and then the PR1 mm-hmm. men's and women's singles. And we've just had introduced okay. for Paris a PR3 mixed double, uh, which is a new event. And okay. then at World Championships, um, which is conducted every year, there's some additional boats like a PR2 single, as well as the PR3 double was at that, but it's only just been included in the Paralympic program. Okay, cool. Nice. Thanks for covering all of that. That's uh, a lot of information. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I believe that the distance covered, at least on the Olympic side, is is potentially being reduced to 1,500 metres. Is that the case? Yeah, for LA. So my my understanding is that all the international events and everything leading up to that will be 2,000 metres and then the LA Paralympics and mm-hmm. Olympics will be over 1,500 metres due to the okay. constraints around the, the course and where they, where they actually decided to have the rowing as an event. Right. Okay, so that's more a, an anomaly. It'll probably go back to the 2,000 metres after that? Yes. Yeah, that, that's yep. how I understand it. Yep. Unless you've heard mm-hmm. something differently. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely oh. certain that that's the case, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what would a typical training week look like? You kind of alluded to the fact that you've got a high need for endurance being yeah. 7 to 10 minutes in duration. So it's a very high intensity but requires that endurance side of yeah. things. So what would a typical week's training look like for you? Yeah, so our, our pro, power program is camp space so we, we try and influence the the local training environment as best we can and keep mm-hmm. pushing things along and that I think fair to say we, we'll be moving a lot harder in that space as we prepare for Paris so for me uh, what would constitute an ideal training program for someone that's preparing is that typically they'd be on the water for between five and seven sessions a week and that can be anywhere mm-hmm. normally from uh, an hour up to 90 minutes. So there's a significant load in itself. Then you could expect them to be in the gym for three sessions a week, and that could be somewhere between one and two hours. And mm-hmm. then around that, th- that's the, the I, I guess, the key foundational sort of training uh, that, that uh, we need to do. Then around that, they would also be on the rowing ergometer for a reasonable amount of time in the week, and that might be one or two sessions per week, anywhere from 60 to 120 minutes, I think it'd be standard. Mm-hmm. And then around that, we pack in as, as much cross-training as is needed by that person or as can be tolerated, depending on your perspective. Mm-hmm. So really, you're filling in a lot of minutes in, in the week um, where it could be anywhere... Yeah, depending on the athlete too, uh, I think a, a great standard would be somewhere around the 800 to 1,000 minutes of, of training per week. Um, mm. and, and that's a significant load and mm. basically you know, it can be anywhere from four or five hours a day. Uh, that's for our top end. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a pretty intense. Yeah. And so, and, and what's the competition schedule or opportunities like? Yeah, quite quite reasonable, I think. Domestically, para rowing will, will feature in state championships, and each state is, is different to the amount of demand that's there. So some states will offer a significant amount of para events, like what we have at New South Wales Championships every year. That's one of the biggest para regattas outside of our national championships that we have. Mm-hmm. And then below that, for other states and also club 
and, and school competition, what we find is that the rowing associations are actually very flexible and accommodating of, of demand. So if, if there's para rowers, for example, in Canberra, the local rowing association, Rowing ACT, will be able to put on a, a, an event to meet that within a normal regatta program. So they'll actually have para rowing events. And then depending on the impairment and the person's experience and what they're really looking for, and we actively encourage this where it's useful, is that they are able to compete and race in able-bodied events, which they'll do mm. from time to time. In my mind, we don't do that enough. And obviously, that depending on the impairment, that, that can you know, suit different needs. So the PR3 sport class, you know, when we have someone that's really good, it's like, yeah, we're encouraging them to race in the able-bodied events. Then yeah. national championships is our pinnacle event in, in Australia that has a, a very good and broad range of events that we've managed to build over time. There were events before I started in 2012. There's a long history with para rowing in Australia, but mm -hmm. we've been able to expand the mm -hmm. events um, really on the back of expanding the demand. So the number of athletes is increasing. We have a broader range of impairments. We have, a, a for example, a really high interest with athletes with intellectual impairment. And, and although they're All not right. represented in the, the Paralympic program and, and also the world championship program with On Water, we, we still have the capacity and, and the interest and I think the obligation to have them included in our, our, um, our thinking uh, for the sport. So they're included mm -hmm. in the PR3 sport class. So quite a few events and that's growing. National championships, there's also the King's Cup, uh, which is an interstate competition on the Sunday. And then mm -hmm. one of the things, one of the many things that I'm really happy about is that we were able to uh, have para rowing included in that interstate competition for the first oh, time. Oh wow! So yep. and now yeah. that's it, it started off as a, a trial event, and I, I think fair to say there was a little bit of not not, not reluctance to have it in there, but. It was almost like, well, we don't really, we haven't done that before. We're a bit concerned, and and we had it as a trial event first. And now for this year's nationals that we've just had in Victoria, uh, for this year that that's been featuring as part of the program, and it, and it's just another event. So we don't talk about mm -hmm. the first or or you know it's nothing unusual. And I, I I'm actually really proud of that. I really like that. Nice. So it, it's well accommodated nationally and then internationally where we're just getting ready to travel overseas there's a significant para rowing regatta it's called the Gavarata International Para Rowing Regatta in mm -hmm. Italy uh, every year in May and it's very early in the season but over time mm. and really through uh, I think local interest and involvement it's, it's grown over many years to be I, I would think the premier para rowing regatta in the world so anyone that's anyone mm. would be there uh, internationally. Yeah. So you represent your country to race there. But the nice thing is it's also more or less run by the Italian Rowing Federation and the local rowing club that they have the flexibility to accommodate a range of new events and, and it's really quite broad in, in what they're able to do and flexible, oh, nice. which is unusual. And then we go to World Cup okay. uh, sort of competition. So uh, two weeks after that in June, there'll be a World Cup regatta but that's, uh, it's definitely inclusive of para rowing and uh, that, that's actually quite normal and, and nothing mm -hmm. unusual, but it's very restrictive on the program and we don't have any flexibility to include new events or try new things there. And then we right. get ready for the World Championships. That'll be later in the year in September. Typically, that's August and September every year. 
and, mm. and then the, the ultimate event in the whole cycle is the Paralympics every four years, uh, more or less, you know, yeah. ignoring last year. So uh, <laughs> we get ready for the Paralympics. And in, in that year when we have the Paralympics, there's still a World Championships and the World Championships mm -hmm. will still include para rowing, but it'll be the events that aren't on offer at the Paralympics, if that makes sense. So we have yep. World Championship events every year, so there's always something to look forward to, if, if not the Paralympics yep. ultimately. And so I guess from travelling from Australia, for example, or anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere, if you've got the Gavarate international event in May yep. and then World Champs aren't until August, September... Yep. Do you tend to come home or do the, the rowers actually tend to stay overseas for an extended period of time? Yeah, we come home because I mm -hmm. think our athletes are more or less a little bit older. They may have jobs, families, support networks at home. And while travelling in Europe is, you know, on one hand it, it sounds great and you're close to the competition and working your way through there, I, I think um, there's a significant downside to being away from home for significant periods mm. of time. So very targeted towards Gavarate and, and possibly a World Cup, depending on the schedule, being early in the season and yep. then coming back for more or less three or four months. Coming back for the World yeah, Championships. And then getting ready yep. um, to travel again, depending on where the World Championships are. So we'll come back. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what are the... Do you, do you have any common nutrition issues or challenges that you face with the para athletes that you've you've noticed, or is it similar to able-bodied athletes in that you know they're they're just hungry machines? They tend to need a fair bit of fueling because of the volume of training that they're doing, and trying to balance that with the rest of their life can sometimes be difficult. Yeah, that that's pretty much it. Uh, I, I don't see too many distinctions that are para-specific or, or any at all, really. More or less, it's about finding a way of completing a high volume of training in, in all the other things that we have going on and, and trying to fuel that and fuel that appropriately. Mm -hmm. So we have similar, uh, similar requirements where you might have someone that just needs more calories in, in the day to be able to yeah. satisfy the, the, the demands of their day-to-day -day training. We have similar, if not the same, demands and issues, you know, where you might have, I think depending on their backgrounds, you know, people talk a lot about carbohydrate and, and the need for that, but, you know, not paying attention sometimes to, you know, keeping their iron levels low. So it's not unusual to have the, the ferritin dropping out and, you know, you have a consequence in, in terms of being able to complete your training as a result of that. So... It, it, on one hand, it's straight calories and being able to satisfy the huge demands of, of what training adds into your, your day, but also, you know, paying attention to, you know, having those nutritional requirements met to yeah. be able to, yeah, to we, function well. Yeah, yeah we did a, the, a podcast um, about two podcasts ago about iron mm -hmm. and iron requirements yeah. in in athletes, yep. so um, we covered that. So yeah, it's something. Do you find that it's more an issue with your female athletes than with your male athletes, or do you find it's both? It's definitely both. And then logically, mm -hmm. there's an extension that the females would be more at risk. And this is for my able-bodied 
background as well and and um, mm. really where I get to that is you know if we have the capacity to monitor it we just keep an eye on that or if, if someone's presenting as being tired all the time they typically offer a blood test and you know it's not yeah. unusual to have low iron levels as a result and that can be male or female um, I, I don't really make that yeah. distinction but obviously there are some differences and maybe some added you know, well there are added uh, risks or, or, or things that predispose someone to having an iron deficiency. Mm, mm. Great. And so how does a potential rower get involved in para rowing? Is there, would they do that through their local clubs yep. in their, where they live? There's a variety of options and I think there's no, no one clear path. Some people will have success at, at walking or rolling into their local rowing club or, or making a connection there. Mm -hmm. Uh, other and, and I think this is typical of, of para sport as well. Is if they're making a connection with with a club that has no para rowing experience or knowledge or understanding of para sport or just people wanting to participate um, or, or have an inclusive mindset, it can actually be quite difficult at times. But there's nothing to stop someone from you know uh, searching up their local rowing club and just trying to make a connection and they might find that they're actually very well accommodated and looked after and depending on the impairment that, that, that can provide some opportunity or challenges for the club to work around but what, in my experiences if you if you have the mindset of yeah whatever it is we'll make it work then that tends to work really well and if that mindset mm -hmm. is not there it doesn't matter what the facilities look like it, it actually can be difficult so uh, club connection Yep, for sure. State associations typically have a, a development officer and the, these are organisations that are really relatively easy to get hold of and it's just a matter of calling or emailing and sort of saying, well, this is where I live, I have an interest in rowing and then they try and make a connection. And, mm. and then also nationally, I get contacted almost regularly about, you know, I, I live in this location, I'm interested in para rowing how do I do that? Because rowing is not a very visible sport, you know. Mm. You're, not unless you've got a pretty decent waterway near you. Yeah, that's right. And, that has a, and even so, yeah. you know, most people aren't out of bed at six o'clock in the morning, um, mm. and and it's quite normal for us. But you know, when when people drive over the lake in Canberra, for example, when they're going to work at eight thirty, there typically wouldn't be a whole lot of rowers. But if you were there at six thirty, um, yeah, you, you see a whole raft busy. of people out. Yeah, it's very busy. And then, um, mm. and this is from my own personal experience, seeing a rowing boat on the water, you don't really identify where where they came from or where they go to, so and where that connection is. So it, it's like mm -hmm. they're just on the lake, but the actual rowing club where, where people are that can help you get into the sport, that's not really visible. And then most people start rowing because someone in their family did it or they're referred by someone. So mm -hmm. sometimes it's a little bit hard and we don't have the visibility of other sports and typically we're not on TV all the time. So it's it, it's an, mm. a, um, unusual in that respect. But there are rowing clubs uh, pretty much all over Australia, um, all around the world really. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a matter of a, a simple search of saying, you know, rowing club, my location and, and trying to track that down. Yeah. And sometimes um, what I encourage people to do also is be prepared to just be persistent if you really want to do it mm. you know it's reach out to someone and then you just try and find the avenue that gets you sitting in a boat because we know that when people are sitting in the boat they actually enjoy it and, it, and it's really good fun 
and then mm. you know depending on what people's motivations are and and what their what their potential is like and then ultimately their performance that dictates where they go in the sport and anyone can yeah. participate yeah. in rowing I, I, I believe so and then from time to time say nationally here we run programs from time to time where where we will for example call for expressions of interest from from anyone that thinks that they have an eligible impairment or really anyone that has an impairment that is interested in rowing and we did this a number of years ago and, and it was really successful for us because we didn't create too many barriers to that and so righto if you have an impairment mm. and particularly if you you've never rowed before we were really interested in having them come to Canberra and and spend a little bit of time with us and then we, we'd show them the basics from a yeah from a high performance perspective but understanding that these are people that had never rowed and, and mm. run them through an activity and then the the big challenge was was okay where do you live, and then from my perspective as head coach trying to make those uh, cold calls to say okay I, I have this person here they're interested in rowing and and uh, you know I'm even working on one at the moment so yeah where we, we do that all the time and then that placement in a rowing yeah. club and to be able to sit in a boat and once you've done that that that's almost the once you've done that it, it becomes easy after that and it's all fun. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I guess that is one of the nice things about para rowing is that it's it's pretty much most impairment types who can compete in in or and can be in a boat and to and can row. You know, yeah. so it it does open itself up to a wide range of individuals, and I think you know the water safety factor is as long as you've got the right equipment yeah. and and say you know most. Most rowing clubs have a decent pontoon to be able to get yep. down to the water, yep. and so I think you know the accessibility factor can be can be easily overcome in most instances. Would you say? Yeah, uh, as a general uh, statement, but there's that, some areas or some clubs that just won't be able to do that. But I, I think as a broad, you know, put it this way, that's my philosophical approach: is that anyone should be able mm -hmm. to go into any rowing club in the country, and it, it should be accessible and inclusive mm -hmm. and there's ways around everything and if someone doesn't have the resources or the or the equipment or the facilities you know there's there's ways of improving that and over yeah. time you know it's, it's changed enormously in the in the 10 years or so that I've been uh, specifically doing para sport and I think that's that's mm -hmm. one of the real kickers for me that keeps me involved is that the sport is a, a very important vehicle for cultural change as well mm -hmm. cool so, Gordon, I'm really interested in your reflections over those past 10 years of moving into more aligned or more fully into parasport, even though, you, as you say, back in the back in the 90s, you were starting yeah. to, to get some involvement. What are some of the things that you feel you've, you've learnt or that you can take away from those last 10 years in particular, but even before that? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, oh, there's there's so many things. If I think about athletes competing in the sport, uh, it's grown to a point where they're competing a, alongside their able-bodied counterparts uh, over the same distance, mm -hmm. doing mm -hmm. the same training or the same types of training, and it and it's it's the same and it's inclusive and and that's great mm -hmm. and it hasn't always been that way. For me as well, there was a maybe a personal Sort of realization or, or if I think back at, at some point 
you know, we're very results oriented. And I think that's critically important. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no escaping the fact that when you compete at the Olympics or Paralympics, and we know that winning isn't everything, but it's it's super important. You know, people refer to medal tallies, yeah. and, and there's yeah. uh, very important and good reasons for that. But through through para sport, and I think maybe I was coaching this way anyway. I'm more interested in the person mm. and and what their experience is like, because in the end, everyone retires at some point. And, and moves on to other things in their life. And I, I think, what, yeah, it, it, it's sometimes hard for me to even articulate it, but when we have people that, that go through an experience where they gain an impairment that is a mm-hmm. significant life-changing event, mm-hmm. I, I've seen this, you know, where, where sport is this, and, and it's not for the result in itself, it's just this amazing vehicle that, transitions them from one point in their life to the next and then Mm. you know we see this time and again where sport is just this amazing vehicle for positive change or or it gets them to Mm. a better place and it's not no one owns athletes no one owns people no one owns the sports and and the way I see it is that where where our our responsibility or my responsibility as the coach is to help this person transition from one point of their life to the next Ideally, yep. they enjoy it, super and great if they get good results and compete internationally and win medals. But if they don't, that's not the most important thing. And then uh, I, I, I sort of extend that to my thinking about, well, isn't that the same for anyone competing at mm-hmm. the Olympics? Apparently, you know, so able-bodied. And I gave a talk a long time ago about the differences between para sport and an able-bodied sport and really what it came down to. I described some of the differences and the things that people, you know, and, and it all makes sense. But then I came back to, well, isn't every athlete really different? Doesn't every athlete have mm. their own challenges and stuff? And sure, Paralympic athletes, you know, can be different. And I'm not saying it's more or less or whatever, but, you know, I think everyone is an individual and that's really important. So that that, that was, yeah, if I think back on all the, yeah, my, my para-rowing experiences and coaching, that, that yeah. that's an absolute standout for me. And going, well, you know, what's mm. the most valuable thing for me? It's it's not the medal count at the end, end of the, you know, wh- whatever we're working towards by any stretch. That is important, yeah. but it's more about, yeah, how, how have we left the, the sport? Journey for the... How, how have we, yeah, yeah, and it's all that journey stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and that's for coaches as yeah. well. So it's for everyone. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, what if there was a coach who was wanting to get involved in coaching para athletes? What would you recommend to them? Yeah, uh, just just uh, treat it as uh, someone that wants to learn how to row. And and you know, mm. sure, there's other challenges, but that that's really interesting, and it and it can actually add to your total coaching experience and, and capacity as a coach. And don't don't be don't be afraid to. Um, Give it a go, you know. Don't be afraid of what you don't know. Uh, that that's the easy point mm. to get to is like, oh yeah, I've never done power rowing before. That's really difficult. Well, you could say that about coaching an eight or a four. I've never coached a four. It's almost the same. Mm-hmm. But I think anyone that is offered the opportunity, I'd say, give it a go. Cool. And do you have any recommendations for practitioners who may be starting to work with para-athletes, you know, um, like sports psychologists, sports dietitians, physiotherapists, any specific recommendations that you'd have for them? Yeah. 
it's the individual first, not not the impairment. Mm-hmm. That, that that's probably the standout, and then everything becomes clear. It gives you a clear path, but every yeah. individual, you know, every individual has has things that they're dealing with. So it's it's you know, yeah. like what I said before, you know, for me as as a coach, I don't necessarily see the impairment, but the impairment can be you know very important at times. So it depends on context and. Yeah what that relationship looks like. But for me, it's about, say, when I'm talking to some of our, our service team, you know, we've in there, well, what I'm really looking for is someone to be able to row a longer stroke and to be able to pull harder mm-hmm. during that stroke and take more strokes per minute. So if nothing else, we try and always come back to length, pressure and rate. Mm-hmm. And depending on who we're yep. talking to and what about, well, that, that can be more or less relevant. But I, I think, yeah, you work the individual. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Well, Gordon, thank you so much. You've given us some really great insights into para rowing and it's great to draw on your experience. I want to finish off with something that's just a little bit more personal to you. What's your favourite food? <laughs> oh, there's, there's, a, <laughs> there's a few, few things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'd have to say um, uh, bread uh, and in particular <laughs> rye bread uh, and there's a Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my, my father is a baker. His oh. father was a baker and his grandfather mm-hmm. was a baker. And, and in some ways I wish that I was a baker. So I, I love baking <laughs> bread and rye bread mm-hmm. uh, or, or basically a light rye. Um, and I, I love making that one because it's a, a really interesting flavour. But but mm-hmm. more so it's it's that connection to family. And, and food is such an amazing uh, gift, you know, to be able to share bread with someone, you know, there's there's reason why yeah. people talk about that, you know, you break bread or what, whatever. So, so bread for me is my absolute favourite food, I think, but it's more about that that connection with family. So that's maybe not the answer you were expecting, but a hundred percent bread. Yeah. It's really interesting because I ask this question of everyone who comes on the podcast, and that and and that's probably the most fascinating answer that I've had. So far, yeah. So, thank you, Gordon. I would love to come and break bread with you at some point in time in person. Yeah, you bet. You know that that's the thing. I, I love <laughs> baking bread for things, and and I, I have left uh, gifts of bread at people's houses just randomly, uh, not random people, but <laughs> random friends, and I'll just drop them off, and I call it a bread yeah. bomb. So that they just get a gift, <laughs> so. yeah. Oh, I love it. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Gordon. I'm going to let you get on with your busy, busy day because I know you've got international travel coming up and you've got plenty on your plate. So thanks again for joining us and uh, all the best for the next few years. Thanks, Liz. Uh, And likewise, I enjoyed the chat and a bit of reflection in there for me, which is, yeah, good. And, uh, yeah, look forward to, to catching up with you at some stage, yeah, for sure. I love Gordon's philosophy that everyone should be able to row and to look at the individual first, not the impairment. I think he's got some great reflections on a number of years of coaching para rowing. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and if you have any feedback or people you'd like to hear from, please leave a message on our website. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Dr. Ben Stevenson about temperature regulation and the research that he's done on this topic in paratriathlon.